autistic people with quality of life and opportunity. You're listening to the Autism CRC podcast. This is the Autism at Work speaker series featuring pre-recorded audio captured during the live Autism at Work virtual summit event held in March 2023. Hear from over 40 local and international speakers, panelists and presenters, including neurodivergent employees and employers, as they discuss the important topics affecting autistic people at work. You can also watch this series on the Autism CRC YouTube channel. Okay, here we go. Quick turnaround's a good turnaround, my friends. Uh, Welcome back. And we are now getting ready for another amazing session. And once again, I'm Orion Kelly. Uh, This is actually the last session that uh, I'm a part of that I'll be introducing. And then uh, that's it for me, uh, little people to take care of. So uh, thank you to... um, to everyone involved for allowing me to be a part of this amazing opportunity. Thank you to obviously to uh, Autism CRC, uh, to the to Untapped, and to everyone involved. I really do appreciate it. Uh, check and Andrew, Eddie, and everyone. Um, just a reminder: um, it, as I, I'm Ryan Kelly, I've got this brand new book out. Okay, so it's uh, not a, not available. It's available worldwide in April, but you can actually get it right now on a pre-sale if you want to support an autistic content creator, and I can even sign it for you. So you just go to my website. Um, and I do appreciate uh, everyone for being here over the last couple of days. It's been great to be a part of this. So, so thank you. All right. Now, this is going to be really interesting. A first of two sessions on higher education. Uh, I think it's really interesting because I think there's, there are key barriers to completing higher education for neurodivergent people. It's just, it's just a fact. And I think there's lots of things to talk about and discuss. All right, a panel discussion moderated by Andrew Eddy. Now, before I hand over to the great Andrew, I would like to uh, let you know once again, uh, because presumably you haven't got it by now, uh, there's a Q&A pane where you can access that by clicking on the Q&A tab on the right-hand side of the screen. Put your questions in there. As soon as they come up, put them in there, please. And if you have a look and you like the questions, but they're not yours, uh, well, you know, if you're uni, that's plagiarism. You can't do that kind of stuff. Um, The job is just to give the ideas a lecture back to them and then you pass. Uh, I've I've gone I've gone off. I'm sorry. Um, you click on the upvote clicking the arrow beside it to vote for it, and we'll get to as many questions as we can. You can see it's been a long couple of days for me. All right, Andrew Eddie, legend friend, it's time for you to take over, my friend. Thank you, Orion. That's that's great. Thank you for everything you've done for the summit. It's uh, you've done some great things with moderating sessions and and being a great MC. So thank you so much. My pleasure. Um, thank you. Thank you. So welcome everyone to this session. Um, my name is Andrew Eddy from Untapped Talent. Uh, we're going to start with a live presentation from La Trobe University about their neurodiversity project. Then we have a pre-recorded interview from Rochester Institute of Technology in the US. And then we're going to hear from Flinders University, uh, University of Adelaide and GHD Engineering about a recent internship. So I'd now like to introduce Beth from the Neurodiversity Project at La Trobe. And Beth will turn on her camera and share her screen. Um, So she's involved in the Neurodiversity Project there at La Trobe in Melbourne. Um, Beth has lived experience of autism and will be providing an update on the La Trobe University Neurodiversity Project. Uh, If you have any questions, please put them in the Q&A function and we'll come back to these uh, at the end of the presentations. Thank you, Beth. Thanks, Andrew. Um, at the moment, it's just saying that the uh, participant sharing is disabled. Are we able to change that, okay. please? Excellent. All right. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm really thrilled to be back at another Autism at Work Summit. I think this is my third or maybe fourth. <laughs> um, so 
awesome to be back for another year. Um, I'm here representing the Latrobe University Neurodiversity Project, uh, and I'm going to speak a little bit about our uh, work in this area. Um, all right, so uh, there's kind of a couple of parts to the presentation today. I'll talk a little bit about who we are uh, at the Latrobe Neurodiversity Project. Uh, and what kind of approach we're taking to facilitating autism and neurodiversity inclusion. Uh, and then I'll speak about kind of in practice, what are we actually doing to respond to the um, sort of research and theory side of things. So I'll start with uh, our, our background and our approach. So our team comprises of uh, myself and my wonderful colleague, Nissa Jaworowski. Uh, so both of us come from social sciences backgrounds, which I think is really core and central to the approach that we take at La Trobe. Um, I have expertise in sociology and diversity studies, and so I'm really interested in understanding what types of barriers society might be creating that would prevent uh, social, educational, and employment access for neuro-minority groups, including um, autistic people. Uh, so what we've done is we've kind of established this project uh, at the same time as I'm completing a PhD. So it's it's kind of a setup where the research from my PhD informs everything that we do at La Trobe. And I'll just talk a little bit about what that research has found and how that's impacted our approach. So I, I focus primarily on autistic masking and camouflaging, and I'm going to talk a little bit about that now. Uh, so one major barrier that research shows uh, is experienced by disabled students in higher education is the expectation that they disclose in order to gain access to support services and programs. So uh, in the context of autism, it's really important to understand this because in, in this context, about three quarters of autistic people report masking and camouflaging. And this means that they try to purposely conceal autistic traits. So they might not want to be seen stimming. They might try to um, pass as neurotypical by making normal eye contact, changing their tone of voice, their body language, and so forth, um, which also obviously includes a, an element of non-disclosure. So you're not wanting people to know you're not disclosing. So if you need to disclose to access support, but three quarters of autistic people aren't comfortable disclosing, this is gonna create significant barriers uh, to accessing the type of support that's needed. Um, this is unfortunately a major issue because research is showing that masking is causing stress, exhaustion, um, and a lot of consequences. It requires intense concentration, self-control, and management of discomfort. So this is going to create a lot of barriers for autistic people in classroom and workplace settings. Unfortunately, there are also some pretty significant mental health consequences, um, including anxiety, depression, as I said, exhaustion, fatigue, burnout, um, and suicidality. And all of these mental health consequences are then going to act as further barriers to participation um, in universities and workplace settings. So we really need to understand uh, why this is happening and what we can do to respond to it. So my research is really focusing on identifying the social drivers of masking and camouflaging. Um, and what we've found is that only 7% of autistic people feel that they're accepted by society. Um, in the context of ADHD, which commonly co-occurs with uh, autism, uh, ADHDers receive about 20,000 more negative messages than their peers by the age of 12, uh, and this then impacts self-esteem. Uh, the most common reasons people give for masking are passing in a neurotypical world and avoiding retaliation and bullying. Uh, 
They mask and camouflage to obtain jobs and qualifications that they feel are less accessible if they're visibly autistic. Um, there, a lot of people reported feeling like they're perceived as dysfunctional or incapable if they're visibly autistic. Even if their skills are the same, if they're seen finger flapping, they feel that their colleagues think they're less capable. Um, I won't go into these in great depth right now, but um, there are very significant consequences that would greatly impact quality of life and the ability to participate socially and in a workplace or educational setting. So, you know, why are masking and camouflaging so common? Well, we've just talked about some of the drivers, but in, in the big picture context, um, why is this happening? Uh, well, I think what's really come out of the research is that oftentimes people tend to conflate appearing neurotypical with being high functioning or more capable. So the idea is if you can pass as neurotypical, you're going to be more intelligent, more capable, more functional. Um, and this is creating a lot of pressure to mask and camouflage. Um, the thing that I find interesting as a sociologist is that these concepts of masking and camouflaging are really common outside the context of neurodiversity, and they're actually used in, in contexts of gender, sexuality, race, ethnicity, and even beyond. So we've seen this pattern where there's one standard, healthy, normal way to be in society. And, you know, in this case, we're talking about neurotypical, but that can also be in relation to, as I said, ethnicity, um, gender, sexuality. And then we have this spectrum of groups that are expected to kind of assimilate with that norm if they want to um, participate and avoid stigma and discrimination. So what I'm interested in is kind of addressing the question of how can we shift towards equity and inclusion for autistic people without expecting masking and camouflaging? How do we reduce the pressure to mask and camouflage? Kind of shift away from that medical model. So at Latrobe, um, we're really, as I said, heavily informed by research in this area and taking this systemic approach based in sort of a sociological approach to inequity. So how do we identify kind of structural barriers in society that are driving masking and camouflaging and preventing people from accessing employment and education opportunities? Um, so what we did was we published a theoretical model uh, that we refer to as the minority group model of neurodiversity. And it takes these kind of lessons that we've learned in other contexts in the equity, diversity, and inclusion sphere, and then tries to learn from them uh, to foster neurodiversity inclusion. So this theoretical model informs all the work that we do at Latrobe. So now I'm gonna talk a little bit about how do you take this theory and translate it into practice? Uh, so as you can see, I've kind of got uh, an illustration of the minority group model here on the screen. So that previous model was very different, right? We had one group that was at the top of the hierarchy that was good and functional and normal and healthy. And then we had a spectrum of other groups who were expected to assimilate if they wanted to participate. Uh, in the minority group model, uh, we would more see that there's a privileged group in society and we need to actually you know, foster equity for groups who are being marginalized um, and oppressed in an inequitable world. So how do we actually do that uh, at Latrobe? Well, we have quite a multifaceted approach. A key element of Latrobe's uh, strategic vision as an institution is to provide educational access to traditionally underrepresented cohorts. Um, we do this for students who are first in family to attend university, uh, those who experience socioeconomic hardship, uh, for cultural and linguistic diversity, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander, 
uh, students, women, uh, the LGBTQIA plus community. And in all of these contexts, uh, we recognize that there are privileged groups in society that are achieving better outcomes because they're privileged and because society has been built to benefit and include them. Um, and then we act to identify and remove barriers. So I, I suppose the question I want to pose is, if we know that about 20% of the population are neuro minorities, why should our approach to disability be different? Why should we expect um, assimilation in order to participate um, when we could be trying to remove barriers that drive people uh, to mask and camouflage? Um, so on the institutional level, uh, there are many things that we do. We provide neurodiversity ally and accessibility training. We're really trying to change the culture at La Trobe to be more neurodiversity inclusive. Um, we review policy. We work with our senior executive group, uh, and we, we really engage with our staff and students through our neurodiversity networks to ask what types of initiatives they'd like to see. Um, and this is all done through an industry partnership with Neurodiversity Hub. So we use that model framework to keep us uh, accountable to ensure that we're taking a really systematic approach. And we've seen massive growth in this area in responding to that model framework. Uh, so uh, this is kind of the final section of my presentation, but one of the key outcomes that we've had here is our new neurodiversity uh, placement program. So we offer a minor in industry placements where students can take up to 400 hours of placement during their degree so that they graduate with CV experience. Um, so in that minor, we've now uh, become a host uh, from the neurodiversity project. So students can actually come and do a placement on the neurodiversity project with myself and Nissa as their supervisors. Um, and we will actually train them in neurodiversity inclusion. So this is a 100 hour placement. They'll learn about advocacy, the relevant policies and laws in this area. Uh, they'll learn how to work on a long-term project that's aligned to their career goals. Uh, it's been designed in such a way that it's neurodiversity accessible. It's offered via remote work. And when students graduate, they have the skills needed for neurodiversity inclusion. And this includes if they are themselves autistic or otherwise a neurominority, or also if they're just interested in learning how to change their own workplaces in the future to be more neurodiversity inclusive. So we have students in everything from neuroscience uh, to social sciences, um, and they're going to go out into the workplace and start to uh, remove some of these barriers to participation by making their employers more neurodiversity friendly. Um, and I'll offer a little plug here. If we have any employers watching who are interested in becoming placement hosts, we have 10 students right now and we're looking uh, to match some up with hosts who can offer um, subsequent placement opportunities. So I'd love to hear from you. If you are interested, um, you can contact neurodiversity at latrobe.edu.au. Um, so summarize the key uh, things here. Uh, we know that key barriers to inclusion in education and workplaces are the expectation of masking and camouflaging. And to address these issues, we need to be striving for cultural change within universities and workplaces. So that's about all from me. I'll wrap up there. <laughs> Thank, thank you, Beth. That's great presentation. It's great to see the, the progress that you continue to make um, with the program at La Trobe University. So we're now going to um, 
I have a pre-recorded session um, with Laurie Eccles at Rochester Institute of Technology in, in Rochester, New York. Uh, can we now cue that recording? Thank you. Uh, Laurie Eccles is the Director of the Spectrum Support Program at Rochester Institute of Technology. Laurie, thank you for joining us today. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you for having me. Laurie, just to start, can you provide us with a summary of how long the Spectrum Support Program has been running at Rochester Institute? how long you have been involved and what developments you've overseen during your time. Sure. So the Spectrum Support Program started with a pilot, a small pilot back in 2008. We had, I think, 12 students and um, I came in in 2010. In 2008, um, 2009 was the pilot and then the university got a National Science Foundation grant to continue the program, to take that pilot and expand it. So the pilot, uh, like I said, ran 10, 10 or 12 students to start with. I came in when the grant started, right at the beginning of 2010. And so I have been working with the program since then for about 13 years now. Um, which has gone by really fast. Um, and so the developments in the program have been huge, as you can imagine. Um, we started with serving only STEM students, science, technology, engineering, and math, because that's what the grant covered. And we now serve students, of course, in all majors. We really started with one-on-one -on -one coaching, primarily with peer coaches, graduate students at RIT, in our school psychology program. And we have done a lot more than that over the years. We offer still coaching as our primary way of supporting students, but we also do a lot of other things. Um, we do pre-arrival programming for students, specialized programming when they arrive on campus. Um, we do weekly community meetups and monthly game nights. We do a lot of advocacy and consultation and training across campus. So we have definitely pumped up what we do across campus. The other major thing that we have done because of the number of applicants or students that we have requesting services every year as we have institute an application process to help us manage our enrollment a little bit. We now serve about 115 students, and that really is our max. We've, we've kind of gotten to a point where we, we don't have room for more staff, um, and so we have had to kind of institute an application process and sometimes put students on a wait list until a, a spot opens up. Um, we started with graduate students at RIT, but we have expanded to using graduate students from other programs at local universities. They come from social work programs, um, counseling, higher education, things like that. We've also added adjunct faculty contracts. We, had, we started with one full-time staff. We now have been able to translate um, many of those adjunct contracts to one-year contracts and then to permanent staff. So that has been a huge development over time is just our staffing and um, 
the support that we've gotten from the university to be able to do that. We have also developed an, an intern program, as I said, for external grad students that can come in and earn their internship credits with us. And so that has been really exciting. And I think the biggest thing that we've seen over the last couple of years is our neurodiverse hiring initiative. So we started that um, in 2018. That's been a big development, really focused on helping our students to get ready for the transition to employment. RIT is a co-op school, so most of our students need co-op or what we call co-op, what other people might call internships um, in their field of study in order to earn their degree. So pretty high stakes for students at RIT to be able to get those co-ops and that process is difficult for all students, but particularly difficult for the students that we work with. And so we have started working with a lot more employers, doing some training around um, how to interview and recruit our students. Um, we run a career ready boot camp, which helps students get ready for that kind of thing, um, those early work experiences. And um, this year we are doing a spring break leadership trip. So that's kind of our newest thing. So always kind of pushing the envelope, um, moving forward and um, making adjustments to the work that we do and, and just trying to do things better. Thank you, Laurie. That's, that's fantastic. It's an amazing set of developments and activities you've been involved in. Laurie, yeah. what was the impact of the pandemic on the program and what changes did you have to make? Yeah, so I have a great team. We we really moved through the pandemic. Um, you know, it was challenging for everybody, but I think we did a really good job of um, moving our services to online. All of the tools that we were using to help students plan and prioritize, we put those on online um, on Google so that we could work with students remotely and still be able to kind of use the tools together for planning and prioritizing. Um, so we saw all of our students remotely um, when we had to. And since the, um, you know, we've been back in person, the pandemic really kind of opened our eyes to the possibility of using our space, which is really limited, we share space, in the spectrum support program. So we've gotten more staffing, but we have not gotten more space. And so uh, the pandemic really has opened our eyes to the possibility of using our limited space in different ways. So what we do now is we kind of operate more of an, under a hybrid model. So we see all of our first year students in person. We think it's really important um, to institute kind of that connection to the program for them to come to our space, um, for them to know where we are, and to just to get comfortable with not only the coach that they're working with, but the rest of the staff too that are in, in the space. And so we see all of our, our first year students in person. We see some of our upper class students in person. If we, if we feel like a student is might be isolated, not really well connected on campus um, yet, or they're struggling in any way, or they would like to be seen in person, then we see them in person. But a lot of our upper class students we see on Zoom. 
Um, so we're able to sort of take advantage of that kind of hybrid model to allow us to use our space in, in better ways. And we have found that that has worked really well. Um, we have drop-in hours, and so normally we will see students for drop-in appointments um, in person, um, but it also allows us to pull students in via Zoom as well if they're struggling. Um, we can get to them pretty quickly. We don't have to worry about, you know, them not wanting to walk across campus in the snow and wind, um, and so it has really helped us uh, think about things a little bit, a little bit differently. Thank you. That's great. Um but now that things are starting to move back towards normalcy, what are the current impacts you're seeing on the students? Yeah, I think like everybody, we're seeing that students are coming out of high school and into colleges um, less prepared academically. I think with more mental health challenges um, and you know, that's, that's not just the students that I work with, that's students across the board. Um, at RIT, we're definitely seeing some challenges with year one to, to year two retention. Uh, that's a big focus at RIT right now is figuring out how do we, you know, how do we keep those students past the first year? How do we get them through the first year and keep them past the first year because students are really coming in struggling. Um, as I said, academically, a lot of um, additional mental health challenges um, that they're dealing with. And, you know, we're, we're also seeing really parent resiliency is down. We have found that parents just seem more hesitant to allow their students to struggle. They see that struggle going on and they're pretty quick to kind of pull the plug, bring them home, um, and, uh, and, and try to reset, um, which sometimes is, is definitely needed. And at other times, we find that if we can help students through those struggles a little bit, it, it's a really good learning experience. Um, so, so definitely post-pandemic um, or in this new phase of the pandemic, um, we are finding resiliency down both in students and in parents as well. Thank you. Um, so given all of that, um, what are you now planning for the program for the next one to two years? Yeah, it's kind of a new normal, right, for, um, for students coming in. I think we're pumping up our pre-arrival programming. So, um, really meeting with families more during the summer before students come, uh, meeting with students more during the summer. Obviously over Zoom, our students come from all over the nation, so there isn't a way to get them to us uh, before they move in. But we are doing a lot of pre-arrival, um, pre what we call pre-arrival programming during the summer. Um, one of the sessions that we do is a is a wellness session. So our counseling office comes in and talks about the services that they have and um, what they can expect on the college um, in the college journey in terms of stress and um, sleep, hygiene and things like that so that they feel more comfortable with the, the services that are available through the counseling center and families are more comfortable as well with that. Um, so we have a we were able to get our 
pre-orientation programming back so students are able to move in a couple days early, get comfortable with the campus. Um, that reduces stress and, and I think makes a difference as students get going. Um, so in terms of kind of the way we're helping students deal with um, the, the um, kind of the lack of preparation is just to try to um, engage with them earlier, give them a little bit more information up front about like the technology that's going to be used, how their schedules are made, things like that, that, that really cause a lot of stress um, for students and families as they're coming into, into RIT. Um, in addition to that, we're doing some kind of fun things um, some in, in the next couple of years. We have plans to um, just further expand our neurodiverse hiring initiative, always working with more employers. Um, as I said, we have a leadership trip. Uh, what we really would like to do is a, a travel abroad to help students get used to kind of the thought of maybe a, a full study abroad. So that's something that we're hoping to plan out for next year. Um, we're working with our RIT certified, which is a new program at RIT that works with um, employers to identify skill gaps in and challenges in hiring new talent and upskilling the current workforce. And so they're designing some uh, learner-centered experiences that have demonstrable skills for, um, for people. And um, we are going to be working with them to help in their healthcare administration, enterprise leadership, and their communication to introduce them to neurodiversity in the workplace. Um, we're doing that with our College of Business, our MBA program, because that's where a lot of our managers are coming out of. And so we want to make sure that we've given them some exposure to what neurodiversity in the workforce is about, what it means, um, how to, you know, so that we have some managers coming out that are um, well-versed in, in neurodiversity. Um, the other thing we're working on is a module about neurodiversity for our cultural humility certificate, which is offered through our um, disability, or our, I'm sorry, our diversity, equity, and inclusion um, um, area that has not included anything about disability so far. So, um, so this is a, quite a development we have. Um, we're working with uh, somebody from the College of Business to create this module around neurodiversity. And that will be sort of an elective course for the cultural humility certificate, which is um, something that a lot of faculty and staff take, take part in at RIT. Um, so that's, that's exciting as well. Thank you. I think before you mentioned about heightened mental health amongst the students, um, is there anything in particular additional that you're, you've done or are planning to do around that? Yeah, um, so one other thing uh, that we are working on is a sensory space. We have not had a sensory space at RIT. Um, it has, it just, space is such a premium at RIT that um, we, we tried it a couple of years ago in the residence halls and it just wasn't centralized enough for students to um, find it. Um, we have a tunnel system because in Rochester we get snow um, about nine months out of the year it feels like 
And so um, it was down in the tunnel system. It, it just wasn't, uh, it wasn't in a place where students could find it. And so we are working with our, um, a new, a new uh, department at RIT that's focused on our LGBTQI population and um, to create a sensory space in some space that they have that happens to be right near our office. And we also have a lot of students who use both offices. And so um, the sensory space we think will help all students have some place where they can go and just kind of decompress. Um, it will also be able to be used for students to have um, mental health appointments, which is another issue for students, right? They're doing a lot of um, a lot of virtual appointments with their with their mental health providers, and there isn't any place on campus for them to do that that's private. And because a lot of these students are living in the dorms and have roommates and things like that, and so. Um, this is also a space where they'll be able to take those appointments and have um, a private space to be able to do that. So I think that that's really positive as well. One other thing that we're doing is we have um, connected with a local um, mental health provider who identifies as um, having a connection to neurodiversity, and they will be offering a a therapeutic D&D group. Um, many of our students really connect with Dungeons and Dragons. I don't know if anybody else out there knows um, much about that, but um, a lot of our students are very interested in those role-playing type games. And so they'll be offering a um, therapeutic D&D group, and we've uh, been able to find a space on campus for them to be able to do it with us on campus, with our students on campus. Um, because transportation is, is oftentimes an issue for students getting out for uh, those kinds of appointments as well. So that's another kind of exciting uh, development that we think will make a difference for students in, in dealing with all those mental health challenges that they have coming. That's great, Laurie. Um, just finally, um, do you have any other advice for audience members that may be looking at your program and looking at doing their own thing or, or whatever? Yeah. I think, you know, we've changed a lot over time and we're, we're still on this trajectory of like we started 13 years ago. Um, and what we see happening now is much more around culture change, um, neurodiversity friendly, autism friendly universities, that kind of thing. Um, and so we are really trying to move much more in that direction as well, strength-based, student-centered, student voice, um, all of the things that we know are really important. So as I say to most people who ask about what we do at, our, at RIT, um, it can't be done everywhere, right? We have um, some resources that we've been really lucky to, to, to get. Um, we have some families who have given wonderful gifts that have allowed us to do um, some extra things like the Neurodiverse Hiring Initiative and the uh, Spring Break Alternative Trip. Those are things that we couldn't do really without, without gifts from, um, from our families. And so we recognize we're very lucky. Um, I have a large and wonderful staff. Um, not many of these programs run with one person. And so um, the things that we can do at RIT cannot always be done everywhere. But I think 
what can be done is to really think about what, how to make your university more autism or neurodiversity friendly. Um, what do we need to do to make sure that our faculty and our staff understand that everyone learns differently and thinks differently? Um, you know, how can we make sure that our, our university um, is a safe, uh, accommodating, inclusive place for everyone. And so that's what I would really suggest that people think about um, even more than thinking about what kind of, you know, program can we create um, because that's not always, always possible. So that's what I would say. Thank you, Laurie. That's been really valuable. Thank you for your time. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Laurie. Um, so I hope everyone found that interview valuable. Um, so I'm now like to introduce Sasha Lemon Spence, uh, the USEP coordinator at the Community Bridging Services at U Flinders University, University of Adelaide um, in South Australia. Uh, Laura Trotter, who's a senior climate change risk and resilience engineer at GHD in Adelaide, and Joel Clark, uh, an engineering student at Flinders University who has also undertaken an internship at GHD. So Sasha is going to outline how an internship opportunity arose for Joel and then pass to Laura, who will have a conversation with Joel about his experience with the internship. If you have any questions, please put them in the Q&A function and we'll come back to those at the end of the presentation. Thank you. Over to you. Thank you, Andrew. Um, so my name's Sasha Lemon-Spence and I facilitate the USEP program or University Specialist Employment Partnership um, here in South Australia. So Flinders University and University of Adelaide is where I do that and Joel um, is a student at Flinders University and, and that's how we got to meet. Um, so in a nutshell, um, I work quite collaboratively with the, with the faculty and the careers team here on campus, and in particular, the work integrated learning teams. So Joel came through to me because he was looking for an opportunity for placement um, within engineering. So some of the things that we did um, leading into his time with GHD was we worked on things like getting his resume up to date and talking about things that where he could understand where his strengths lay and um, also what some of his challenges might be. And we probably increased Joel's confidence in actually um, understanding those strengths and being confident to be able to talk about them. Um, and in the same, same strength, we also talked about um, what workplace expectations might be in place and um, how we could plan for the challenges that may arise with that. Um, on top of doing all that, Andrew um, at Untapped and I had already had a bit of a professional relationship and I spoke to him about Joel um, with GHD in mind, thinking that he might be a really good fit um, to do his placement with them. So it was a real collaborative approach between um, my, myself and Flinders um, and then linking up with uh, GHD and, and Joel. And then I actually got the opportunity to support Joel um, to go on with the interview 
Um, we went to that together and had a good chat with Laura and then it all just sort of went from there. So, uh, you know, that collaboration, it sort of went then back to the work integrated learning team to facilitate the fundamentals um, of the placement. And I was able to just uh, sort of step out and, and check in with Joel a little bit from there. So um, I did just want to also add externally from the university, I work for community bridging services. So they're the ones that actually allow me to um, do this program so that we we have that um, extra support in place for students with any disability or medical condition doing any um, area of study to actually progress out into those graduate and skills role. So that the program has been established by the NDCO to, to um, bridge that gap and create better conversations and better collaborations. So, um, so I'll hand over to Laura. That's enough of me. We really want to hear from Joel here. Um, so we'll, we'll get into that. So, yeah. Brilliant. Thanks, Sasha. So I'm going to be asking um, just Joel a few questions so we can just uh, shine the spotlight on him and hear directly from Joel how his um, internship at GHD has gone. So, so Joel, um, five months, Hello. five days a week at GHD. Yes. Um, it's it's been it's been great. I know it's been great for you, and it's been it's been fantastic for our organisation. But I'd, I'd like to just take your thinking back, like nine months ago. You can believe it's mm. been that long <laughs> to when you first walked in the doors at our organisation, and how you how you were feeling before, during, and after that interview chat. And I guess you know how, how did the interview go? Yeah, just, yeah. yeah. All right. Well, um, thank you, Laura. Um, well. I think before the interview, I was quite nervous. Um, I hadn't done anything like this before yet. So, um, um, and we, me and Sasha had that planning, um, as Sasha discussed. Uh, so that was that did help me um quite quite a bit. Um, during the interview, um, I found having yourself, um, as well as Sasha there, got quite help, quite helpful and useful, um, to have that support there, um. But then also once I was able to start, like I started talking with uh, Clint, who was who was the uh, transport manager um, uh, uh, during, uh, during the interview. Um, once we connected on some technical details, and uh, once I started talking, just, I just kind of went from there, and, I, and it all went really well. Um, after the interview, I, I felt very positive and very happy, and very I was like I'm very um, looking forward to the future, what was to come. I was really excited what was to to come. Yep, that's brilliant. And I mean, I can remember when when you and Clint did connect, talking about culverts and roads and all this transport engineering speak. Remember, <laughs> Sasha and I caught eyes and we had a little giggle, like, "No, this is this is going well. I think this is going going to work." So, um, yeah, it was it was great. So, obviously, um, we did a little bit of work behind the scenes preparing for you to come into our organisation. All our team leads and our business group managers were put through neurodiversity training um, through with that untapped provided that training. So we were trying to trying to get ready to not just support you, but to support other people coming through. And um, But I'm keen to hear, uh, of course, we did some other things working directly with you to help you settle into the role. Was there anything specific that we did that um, that helped you to settle into the role? Mm, uh, thank you. Yeah. Um, there are a few things um, I reckon. There was the, um, I think, I mean, the, from the support from yourself as well as the things, the um, people team there, I think it was Marcia at the time, then later, uh, it was um oh, I don't, uh oh, Tracy uh, came and then um having that support as well as um support from my um transport uh supervisor um uh, uh, Ches uh having his support with the, the uh, programs and just getting settled in as well as um not having any hard uh, um was like very um um, pr um 
pressuring deadlines. Um, it was relatively laid back. I I could learn the software. I could um I had a brief opportunity to to learn that and just just get the feel of the workplace. And whenever I had a problem, yeah, I could uh, speak to Ches if it was a technical um engineering related issue or was with, or just getting or i could talk to yourself or uh nasty at the time when it read something involving um uh something just office related um yeah that's good and i know i think we had a list of people that you could go and reach out mm. to if you were stuck for different things so yes I, I, I know that that was able to help but it was great from i guess from me like being in that support role just watching your confidence grow over the five months as you completed projects and uh, obviously achievement is one of your, your your drivers and you were thriving on achieving and learning and it was just great to see you um your confidence grow throughout the program um so yeah some highlights of your internship um yeah oh, what, what were they oh yeah well first off it was just getting to work with such um with such an amazing group there was um, um such lovely people it was, um, it was a fantastic opportunity um i couldn't have wished for a better outcome or you know better, better opportunity um but that and as well as um just kind of a a cycle of um um was a positive reinforcement i became more comfortable with my work i then searched for more tasks i was able to complete more tasks and getting gratification from that and just kind of almost this snowball effect of um just you know do more and more feeling more comfortable with my work and then um taking on more tasks and then completing those said tasks and just doing that over and over again it was just really good i think they were probably the two largest highlights of, of, the, of my experience yeah brilliant so I guess hindsight's always a, a great thing and GHD, we're always keen to learn and improve in this area so we can continue to, to welcome more um, talented engineers like yourself into our organisation. So, so after your um, your thoughts on, was there anything that we could have done differently to improve your experience? Well, um, it's, it's, this is quite a tricky question because there, there are quite a few ways to look at this, I guess, you know, because... Um, I know with myself, it was, it was an hour and a half commitment to go from to and from work every day for those five days a week, five months. Uh, so, that, so it was like, you know, um, I had um, work or uh, university commitments outside of the work and perhaps it might've been good if there was a meeting prior to um, my beginning of my internship between myself, uh, yourself, Sasha, as well as um, the uh, topic coordinator for the topic at uh, Flinders University. And as um well as um Clint as well um the transport um manager, um just to outline what was expected from me from a university perspective and how to make that best line up with work, and then yeah from from there so to just to reduce I guess that stress in those last few final weeks. But overall, it was a fantastic experience, and I really I really have a pre really appreciated um and enjoyed this um opportunity to work GHD. Well, thanks, Joel. That's um. It's been a great experience from everyone at GHD. The feedback that people have given to me personally of, of the energy and the positivity that you've brought into the office. I think the day you brought in muffins was a highlight. Um, and just um, some of your, your special interests that have just added, added you know, a lot of, lot of colour and energy to the office and people have just appreciated um, working with you and getting to know you better. So, so yeah, thank you for, um, we're, we're very honoured and, and appreciative at GHD for having you join our organisation and special thanks to Andrew and and Sasha for, for making that possible too. But um, yeah, I think we're going to open up for questions now, aren't we, Andrew? We, we are, we are. Um, and I'd like to just ask Joel um, what he now thinks of engineering as a career, given you, you know, obviously had an interest in it, you, you know, you're completing your degree, but what impact has the internship have had on your view of engineering as a career? 
interesting question. I, you know, it's um, how how how's my perspective change? Um, yeah. Um, I guess I before untouchable, I never really had an idea of like to, like you know, you hear about what engineering is, but it's like to actually see there, to be there in the moment, actually do it. It gave me a newfound, I guess, appreciate appreciation for what I was doing and what I was learning because before it didn't really. Before doing the placement, it kind of at some points almost doesn't feel like you know, you almost you almost like you know you kind of don't even in some points you don't even really know what you're working towards. But by the end, but by the end of the internship, I really knew what I was headed for, and I was really excited about what I saw, and I and I enjoyed every moment of it. So yeah, that's how, so I really look forward to being a part of the the sector's future. That's fantastic. Thank you. So thank you, thank you. Um, for all the presentations, uh, Beth. If you'd like to turn your camera on as well. Um, just want to um, uh, go through some questions that are coming through and it's really covering all the three sections of this session. So um, we'll have questions coming from different places. But one, one of the questions coming through here is, um, it says, what procedures are in place to assist autistic students at university in pursuing a degree such as in science or medicine or engineering? Um, what inclusive practices do universities engage to enrol students in university degrees given the ATAR process and the entry, you know, the university entry scores process? Um, and I just wonder if maybe, Beth, you'd like to talk to, about that last piece around the, the uh, pathways into university and then maybe um, Sasha can say some things from her perspective. Yeah, sure. Um, so we're really fortunate at Latrobe because the university um, caters to underrepresented cohorts. Generally, we do have several alternate entry pathways that don't require an ATAR in order to um, enroll or apply. Um, so one of those programs uh, allows students to actually study a university level course during their um, VCE and they can, for autistic students, they might pick a course that reflects their particular interests and their particular expertise and study it at a university level, which is going to be a little more advanced than high school. And then we will use your grade from that subject um, in order to uh, process your application in lieu of your ATAR. Um, there's another program that allows students to pick a stream, either sciences or arts, I believe, um, and you you take multiple micro subjects uh, and the average, I believe it's the average grade from your subject that's used as your entry score in lieu of your ATAR. So there's certainly lots of ways that um, we could uh, work with students in a really neurodiversity inclusive way um, and leverage your strengths uh, to assist with entry. Thank you. Thank you. Best. Sasha, do you want to... Um talk about what um, your universities do? Yeah, so I, I think as a whole, my observation has been that the universities, um, you know, they all have um, disability support services. So um, I, I would recommend that people actually contact those services at the point of starting university, and then they will help to establish um, an access plan, which will um, identify different supports that people need throughout their university life. Um, and also the enrolments teams within universities can help with advice about those different avenues to come in. Um, and again, it's a little bit about understanding that 
um, having an open conversation about um, your neurodiversity and um, identifying what support you might need is, is all there to help you. Everybody at university wants to see you succeed. Um, and so having those conversations is, isn't there to work against you. Um, as, what was the first part of the question again, Andrew? So the first part was um, what procedures are in place to assist autistic students at university in pursuing yeah. a degree such as in science or medicine? Yeah, excellent. So again, I think primarily that comes back to the access plan um, is when you when you can do that within the, the disability support services, they can then help identify those individual supports that you need. Because as we know, everybody is different um, and, and people can be neurodiverse and have very, very different support needs. So whether that be sensory needs or um, study supports, um, supports in organising your time, um, all those sorts of things. So my, my role in the USET program is a little bit different because you don't actually need any medical verification to access the USET program, which is available in other universities around Australia. Um, and that, that can be really valuable in the sense that some people don't always know how to get support um, or they don't have a medical diagnosis, um, but they may feel that, that they may have some form of neurodiversity. So that's always, um, you know, if, if you can have those conversations, there is help available to get you um, information about how to get those assessments. Fantastic. Thank you. Hopefully that helps. No, that's great. Thank you. Um, so another question we've got is uh, around whether there would be any research on uh, how remote students are going, um, whether um, they're graduating more compared to those on campus because, you know, perhaps they're, they're remote and they don't have uh, some of the issues with perhaps um, getting to university. Um, they're able to be more in their home environment. Um, just questions whether you've seen any research around that as yet. I mean, it might be something that's probably coming because it takes time for research to be funded and get through um, get through ethics and and get completed and published. But have either you, Sasha, or or Beth, heard of anything in that space? Um, just in my personal experience, this is not research or statistics, uh, but I did actually find that through um, COVID, a lot of students in the neurodiversity um, space really struggled with um, online and remote learning. So a lot of them definitely preferred to be face-to-face. -face, and I know from some that I was supporting, they chose to defer their studies um, through that period. So I don't know whether that's reflected in any of best research, but from a personal perspective, um, that's a lot of what I saw. Yeah, just one thing we've got on the Neurodiversity Hub is this... Um survey that was done by the Alliance, which is a group of colleges in the US. Um, one is Rochester Institute, but there's a group of them, and they did the survey of the impact of the pandemic um, on students across uh, America. So that's something that people could have a look at. Uh, Beth, did you have anything to, to add? Um, I think, well, I think it's going to be uh, dependent on the student whether work remote study and remote work or um, attending campus are best. I think in terms of some of the benefits of um, sort of flex modes or flex offerings are obviously, you know, 
reducing the pressure to mask and camouflage is a big one. So if you're studying or working from a, a location of your choosing, you can control the sensory environment. You can ensure that you're able to stim if you need to without worrying about that. Um, so there, there are some benefits. Um, I think the thing that I found really interesting was that transitioning to work from home for a lot of people seemed to highlight, uh, especially in those early stages when people weren't quite sure how it worked, um, highlight a lot of the struggles and barriers that are faced by autistic people every day um, in terms of just having limited access to different environments, not working in an environment that's ideally suited to you, um, being presented with distractions you might not normally have. Uh, so I think it was a really good exercise in empathy in that regard. <laughs> and I think you did a you did a blog post about that as well um, at the university. So that's that's located on Latrobe's uh, neurodiversity yeah. project webpage. I think it was what working, learning, and teaching from home can teach us about neurodiversity or something along yes. those lines. Yes, so I think, I think that was one of the most read blogs in the university that year. So. Um, that's something people might want to have a look at. Um, so, well, thank you very much, everyone, for a great um, discussion presentation. Um, that brings us just to the end of this session. Um, before we go to the next session, uh, we'd really appreciate your feedback. So please take a minute to complete the session uh, feedback form, um, which you can access via the tab on the right that you can click through to, and we'll see you there in a moment. The 2023 Autism at Work Virtual Summit was proudly sponsored by DXC Technologies, GHT Engineering, La Trobe University, Untapped Group, ANZ, and SAP. Autism CRC is the independent national source of evidence for best practice. For more information on Autism CRC or the Autism at Work Virtual Summit, head to our website, autismcrc.com.au.